Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. The litany of contemporary conspiracy theories runs long. Pizzagate, QAnon, chemtrails, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, birds aren't real. Some of these are funny. The rumor that Avril Lavigne or Paul McCartney have been replaced by doppelgangers And some have deadly consequences, like the mass murders motivated by replacement theory or the Chronicles of the Elders of Zion. We might like to think that this is a recent phenomenon, but the first American president to espouse a conspiracy theory was actually George Washington, a Freemason who believed that the Illuminati caused the French Revolution. In his new book, Under the Eye of Power, Colin Dickey asks, What if paranoia, particularly a paranoia of secret, subversive societies, is not just peripheral to the functioning of democracy, but at its very heart? Colin Dickey is the author of Ghostland and the Unidentified, which we talked about a few years ago on this very podcast, and a contributor to our magazine. Thank you for chatting with me about weird things again, Colin. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me on. So I could not help but notice that there is, of course, a through line to your past work here. We're again looking at weird American history. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how you think this book connects to your past work? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right about um, things that touch on, I guess, like what you could call the invisible world or evidence of things unseen, but that skate around religion, you know, so I've done um, a book on ghosts, I've done a book on UFOs and cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. And, and this one on secret societies, like the through line really has to do with this idea that they, all three of them are, are, are sort of like belief systems involving things that can't be directly verified, but which uh, in one way or another sort of affect and influence our world. And I think I just got very fascinated with how those those ideas kind of structure our, our everyday life and how they sort of move through the world. And so, yeah, so I think all three of them are, are of a of a piece of sort of dispatches from the, the, the invisible world, I suppose. Yeah. The conspiracy theory, secret societies angle to me seems almost like a little more in the open, especially these days. Like we hear all the time about QAnon. You've written for us about like the weird cults of, you know, nutritional supplements. Um, and somewhat like that piece, this book is kind of about how all of it goes back to the beginning, back to the founding of America, but also, you know, back to the founding of the Enlightenment. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of your overarching thesis and, and how weirdly essential these things are to the modern world? So this book started, um, you know, like I think like a lot of us, like within the past, you know, seven or eight years or so, I was sort of blown away by the amount of conspiracy theories, things like QAnon and other sort of um, paranoid sort of musings that that sort of seemed to erupt into mainstream consciousness. And I and I wanted to do a kind of deep dive, a kind of genealogy or a history of that idea. And, you know, to kind of keep it kind of focused, I, I look specifically at secret societies and the idea that there'd be a, a, a secret group of people behind the scenes sort of invisibly influencing events and sort of getting away with nefarious deeds. You know, as as you mentioned, I sort of went back to the beginning. And the thing that I think um, really struck me was that they've really been with us through the founding of the country. I mean, you know, George Washington was at least, you know, according to the letters he wrote to friends, a, a perfectly comfortable believing that the Illuminati were behind the French Revolution. You know, Abraham Lincoln 
in sort of famous speeches talked about a sort of conspiracy of slave owners that was sort of ruining America. Um, and so there's always been this belief that our actions are sort of determined by this sort of hidden group of people behind the scenes. Um, and I think, honestly, you can go even further back. You can go to Salem. I mean, that's that's what the, the witch trials were about, this idea that, yes, you know, evil exists. Uh, ordinary people who just look like everybody else are, in fact, in league with the devil. And they are, you know, out to do you harm in sort of secret ways. What was most fascinating to me in sort of thinking about the kind of intellectual history is this idea that in in the 18th and, and through much of the 19th century, the idea that... Um, you know, hidden actors would be behind the scenes determining human history in a way that wasn't immediately evident, wasn't really paranoid. It was sort of how everybody understood the world. You know, if you sort of think about like a kind of pre-modern era when, you know, you know, the invisible hand of God is sort of determining things. And then with the enlightenment, you get, you know, this idea that man is the the measure of all things, that, you know, human agency is the thing behind it. And so if you, you know, again, like Washington wasn't paranoid. It was just sort of a common belief that if you didn't if the sort of events of the day didn't have an immediate visible causal explanation, um, that wasn't the result of chaos or randomness or chance. It was the result of, you know, hidden, hidden people, hidden, you know, actors behind the scenes because um, humans were the driver of human history. And, and so it's not until the 20th century that we sort of kind of shift to our understanding that, you know, history is a little bit more complicated. So, so this, this conspiratorial belief sort of doesn't, um, doesn't go away. What what happens is it, it gets shifted to the margins and it becomes labeled, you know, kind of paranoid and and sort of, you know, kind of fringe because we've shifted the way we understand the world. I'm especially interested in this like turning point you allude to. There's an essay, a famous essay you quote in the beginning of the book by the historian Richard Hofstadter, who wrote The Paranoid Style in American Politics uh, from 1964, um, which argues just that, that conspiratorial thinking exists along the edges of democracy. But you place it at the center of American democracy. What's changed? So Hofstadter's essay comes out in 1964. He's just watched Lyndon B. Johnson beat uh, Barry Goldwater and is sort of, you know, like a lot of people sort of horrified at the Goldwater campaign and the Goldwater movement coming out of the John Birch Society. And and he's sort of trying to make sense of it. So he writes this groundbreaking essay that's become sort of canonical sense um, that that traces this, this, you know, paranoid style in American politics, you know, to, to quote the essay. And, and his argument is basically that Sure, these these people have always been here, but they normally sort of operate on the fringe, and uh, every so often they kind of erupt into mainstream consciousness, and that's what he sees happening with the the Goldwater campaign. But mostly, what we need is a kind of sensible middle, a kind of you know strong centrism that that will keep those you know freaks kind of pushed at the edge. And I think that's become a commonplace narrative about American politics, and I think. One of the things that that I came through with this book is pushing back a little bit on that that narrative because I do think that it's an appealing and a seductive one because it it sort of suggests that the status quo is fine and you know this passive centrism is enough to keep conspiracists out of you know power and and I, again I think what we saw in 2016 is that that factually does not does not work you know I mean the rise of Donald Trump was. Um, allowed for in 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 many ways by uh, people on the right and the left, sort of both believing and that you know this was so fringe that there was no way this guy was ever going to come to power, and you know in some cases sort of watched helplessly. I think the stronger thing is to accept that this is this is in fact 
a a major through line in American history and, and politics and thought, and it needs to be you know actively and and relentlessly combated rather than just sort of watch for for the moments when it kind of you know occasionally burps up out of out of the fringe because I just don't think history shows that. Yeah, I think there is definitely a, a shift too that you talk about where conspiracy theory is initially or like the conspiracy, the secret society exists as a threat to government, like inside versus outside of it. When did things shift? Yeah, as you mentioned, conspiracy theories were always conceived of as attacks on the government, whether or not it was the Illuminati or you know, the Catholics or, you know, whomever. It was the idea that that American democracy and the American government was sacrosanct and it was being perverted by these external forces. And and until about World War II, the slaveocracy narrative, this idea that um, powerful slave owners in the South had such an outsized influence on money and politics that they were corrupting American democracy. And the slaveocracy narrative is one of the only examples where the conspiracy is coming from within this idea that the government itself has been corrupted. And that, yeah, that doesn't really start to change until the 20th century and really in the post-war years when suddenly the the paranoia turns towards the government itself. And again, a lot of this is like totally justifiable. You know, the sort of the the rise of of the CIA and the FBI, both of which are doing you know, pretty terrible things to, you know, Americans, not to say nothing to people abroad, um, but Americans sort of without their consent or knowledge. Um, and and the, the revelations of that kind of destroy a lot of people's trust in in the United States government. Um, the slaveocracy narrative is is one that that now maps very closely onto, again, a kind of um, left critique of certain um you know, levers of power on the right wing, whether it's the Koch brothers or, you know, the NRA or, um, you know, Big Tobacco, you know, this or Monsanto, this idea that these groups have money and power to influence things in a way that I, I think is, you know, there, as I said, I think there's a ring of truth in it. I think the danger is um, when it becomes kind of totalizing, you know, I think the the kind of paranoid moment is when, you know, anything and everything that happens is a result of these, you um, these kind of secret lobbyists who are who are pulling the strings on things, and that that is a perversely a kind of comforting conclusion for some people to come to, because then it means they don't have to do anything. You don't have you know like if if the Koch brothers are going to steal the election no matter what, then why bother fight? You know, just get on Facebook and yell about it, and then go about your day. You know, I mean like um, so there there's a way in which I think conspiracy theories resonate for people because they're comforting because they are are totalizing, and and so opens up this narrative to the belief that um, the government does not have our best interests at heart and that the government itself is the source of the conspiracy that we need to be sort of watching against. Right. And that's where you get things like 9-11 was an inside job or um, the deep state, stuff like that. But I, I guess what strikes me as super ironic in all of this is that at the founding of the United States, like the secret societies everybody sort of gloms them all together, like Freemasons, the Illuminati, Satanists, who am I forgetting? They're all the same. You know, it's all this like cabal that's going after us. But like a lot of founding fathers were actual members of the Freemasons. So <laughs> yeah, right. This was this is the other fascinating thing I sort of knew. I mean, you know, yeah, you know that, you know, Washington was a Freemason. Uh, ben Franklin was a Freemason. Like you kind of know this, but like 
it took me it took me sort of a while to sort of understand exactly like well wait when did the freemasons become kind of the source of this and and again it's really fascinating that like the in the 18th century that that early generation of white colonials they they looked to freemasonry as as a universal positive there was there was not a lot of conspiracy theories about um the freemasons until the 1820s and so you know these were these were men of you know these were white men of privilege and standing or they were sort of you know white men who are looking to increase their their standing they imported freemason from the uk and part of the reason was is it became a way of sort of conferring status and legitimacy on on people and so you know what i the way i describe it in the book is sort of like these are guys who did not want hereditary aristocracy like they you know had been escaping in england but they did want class and they wanted a hierarchy they just did not want to um inherit it you know this idea you know i i you know the the line in the book is that you know americans don't want equality they want equal access to privilege and i think that's what the freemasons offered it offered a way of marking status of marking privilege and marking hierarchy but it wasn't based on lineage or ancestry and and nominally anybody could kind of earn their way into the freemasons and that is you know the difference between somebody like george washington and and thomas jefferson thomas jefferson you know moneyed aristocratic class already um george washington from a much more sort of middle class background who saw the freemasons as a way to kind of move up in the world and so he he joined a lodge and sort of established himself um as he was sort of rising in the world so when does that change happen like when do the freemasons start getting conflated with the illuminati for example who i was yeah. surprised to learn only were around for like a couple years and did seem kind of cool actually <laughs> Oh yeah, the actual the actual Bavarian Illuminati, which um, was only in existence for like ten years, um, basically we're like, yeah, we're going to sort of develop this secret society. We're pushing kind of rational enlightenment theories. We're interested maybe in birth control, maybe in women's rights. We are um, pretty chill about things, and that pissed off the uh, Bavarian government and they were sort of suppressed. And that was the end of the Illuminati um, in, in history, although they sort of had this amazing after career. Um, the, to answer your other question, I mean, the, the way in which the Freemasons become sort of evil, again, is like something that I, I, I wasn't really aware of before I started the research in this book and I found super fascinating. It is what happens is that, again, you you have this this elite club that confers status and and as america develops more and more people want that status and right and so as freemasonry grows its membership ceases to be the kind of already anointed non-hereditary aristocracy of of people like you know franklin or washington and becomes instead a lot more middle class you know journeymen and and laborers and and that kind of thing and so in order to keep those ties cemented and keep that that uh, fraternity meaningful, things got weirder and weirder, more and more esoteric. The the rites and rituals become Freemason become much closer to kind of goth fraternity hazing. You know, all these sort of absurd things you have to do, all of these sort of drinking rituals, drinking out of red red wine out of skulls, all this sort of you know goofy stuff, and it's meant to sort of bind these people together when they're not coming from the same communities or or social classes and so as it gets sort of weirder and more esoteric the secrets themselves become 
more and more important because that's what binds people together. It sort of all culminates in in 1826 in upstate New York with, with a man named uh, William Morgan who is uh, a dissolution Freemason who sets out to publish publicly the rights of the Freemasons and then um, is kidnapped and disappeared and his body is never found. It unleashes a kind of latent backlash that had been maybe brewing for some amount of time that people suddenly realized that they had sort of enabled this organization to exist within American democracy. So you had, you know, you had you had Freemasons as governors, you had Freemasons as senators, you had Freemasons who are, you know, sending letters to these uh, conspirators saying, you know, we will protect you if if something happens to William Morgan. And 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 the rest of the country decided they they'd had enough with this kind of almost mafia-like organization that had had grown out of the Freemasons. Yeah, so interesting. I want to pivot a little bit and ask about how conspiracy theories, especially like fears of secret groups with hidden agendas, is used at times when like American democracy might be changing. You talk about like key moments when we've undergone cultural or political shifts, say, in which conspiracy theories tend to rise. Is there is there something nefarious going on? Is there somebody, you know, pulling those levers and being like, ah, sounds like a great time for a conspiracy theory? Or what do you think is going on? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, you know, as I was sort of kind of putting together this book, I mean, two things kind of kept jumping out to me. One is that I think that we are we are all hardwired to believe in conspiracy theories. So, like, I don't think it's a partisan thing. I think that there are plenty of examples of people in the center on the left being as sucked up in conspiratorial paranoid beliefs as the kind of, you know, Trump right that we're kind of used to equating with conspiracy theories these days. But the other thing is, I think when I when I did the history and I actually sort of looked at where these panics around secret groups controlling the 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 levers behind the scenes, what struck me again and again is that these these moral panics and these conspiracy theories come out of times when there's a lot of social and demographic change, um, and they are used more often than not to to blunt that change or to push back in it or to otherwise sort of find a narrative to help some people make sense of these changes. And I think one of the more obvious and, you know, kind of vile examples is um, during the civil rights era of the 1950s, when you had conspiracy theories sort of floating around that um, behind the civil rights movement were were the Jews, you know, this kind of anti-Semitic rant. Um, and, you know, again, what is what is behind that? That's the, you know, that if you play that out, what you're saying is that um, black people in America do not themselves of their own volition want equality and justice and civil rights. The only reason that they're doing this, they're actually quite happy. They're quite comfortable living sort of second class citizens. And it's only because of these Bolshevik Jews who are fomenting um, this unrest behind the scenes, you know, that's, I mean, again, it's a, it's a wildly racist and problematic argument, but if, if you are a vicious racist, it, it, it's comforting, right? Because then you can sort of convince yourself that, um, the world isn't changing around you, that it's just these kind of, you know, subterranean rabble rousers who are making a, a kerfuffle. And if you just stamp them out, then everything will go back to the way it was. So I think, Again and again, these the specifically these conspiracy theories around secret societies are the ones that get used to explain changes in American democracy, in the American demographic, in community values. I mean, again, what's happening right now is in large 
part a reaction against um, kind of increased visibility amongst the trans community, amongst, you know, the LGBTQ community in general. And um, people are looking for, I mean, some people are looking for a narrative that doesn't involve accepting folks' desire to live as they want to live and instead are finding nefarious secret groups amongst the Democrats and, you know, these hidden networks of, of child abusers who are the people who are actually responsible for this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that, you know, like a lot of the time this stuff gets pointed out, the sort of anomalies in American democracy. But in fact, you know, things like blaming small groups of people for various changes seem to happen all the time. Like if it's not an anomaly and it seems sort of inherent to the way we think about and if we're all susceptible to it, what's the solution, I think? How do we sort of rid ourselves of this conspiratorial thinking or like how do we learn to accept the secret societies <laughs> in our lives? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I, I was a child of the 80s. I grew up listening to Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast album and stuff. So I, you know, I remember the satanic panic. We were just like, I don't know, this is cool music. Nobody's drinking blood. We're just like having a good time. But the satanic panic was a, a massive movement in the 80s that um, led to, you know, dozens of people being convicted um, for tens, in some cases, hundreds of years um, for crimes that they had not committed solely based on the, ten, uh, on the uh, testimony of young children who were emotionally stressed and manipulated to basically create false testimony. And this sent this sent daycare workers, this sent parents, this sent grandparents um, to, to prison, many of whom spent, you know, 10, 20 years before they were finally exonerated. And the thing about the satanic panic is that almost as soon it was, as it was over, we kind of forgot it ever happened. You know, there was no reckoning. There was no kind of acknowledgement. I think, you know, until like the last few years, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of writing done about it. There weren't podcasts about it. There weren't books about it. It was just sort of this thing that vanished. And part of the reason I think that is dangerous is because then when essentially the same narrative got reborn in, in 2015, except now about, you know, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and the Democrats and Pizzagate and all that stuff, it, you know, it was the same narrative, but but for a lot of people, it seemed to come out of the blue. It seemed to be this brand new, oh my God, what are these new shocking revelations? When in fact, it was the exact same playbook just repeated with a new cast of characters. And I think that, A, you're right that, you know, these these things are constant, but B, part of the reason they, they have such um, staying power is because we never reckon with them after they're over. We just forget about them as though they were just a kind of drunken reverie that that we're not responsible for. And and so that amnesia allows each new moral panic, each new conspiracy theory to seem so fresh and vital and, and urgent, um, you know, each time it arises. In a way, I feel like we're just an amnesiac society because even when there is like an actual conspiracy, like you point out the Iraq war being like a great example of here is an actual conspiracy of a bunch of neoconservatives who got together and cooked up this plot and executed it. But even with something like that, we don't properly reckon, I think, with it. And we kind of forget the the broad outlines of things. I think we're just we're just a very forgetful kind of country. Yeah, it's yeah, you're right. It's it's weird. And the and the other thing that I think is a kind of a weird problem is that we have collectively decided to commemorate 
three of these events. So <laughs> so we for, we've forgotten all of them except for Salem, the Red Scare, and Watergate. And I, you know, and I think the Red Scare, the McCarthy hearings, in part because Arthur Miller's Crucible connected it directly to Salem. Those are the three that get taught. And I think, you know, A, it's it's important and valuable that they get taught, but but kind of as you suggest, they get taught as aberrations. They get taught as these singular things that just happened one time, two times, three times in the past, and that was it. And aren't we glad we don't, you know, convict people based on false testimony like they did at Salem. You know, aren't we glad that we don't execute people based on false testimony like they did at Salem? That is over. You know, aren't we glad there aren't political witch hunts anymore? And so, you know, I think we 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 have decided culturally that like we're gonna we're gonna approach these as these like very limited historical aberrations rather than a kind of recurring and de facto way of the way in which American democracy organizes itself. We have links in the show notes to Colin Dickey's new book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy, as well as our previous conversation with him about cryptids. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>